Good morning. It is good to good to see you and to see your smiles and to be in the house of the Lord. You know, it's a true privilege that we should never take for granted of the blessing of assembly, of the blessing of communion. As we assemble this morning around the world, there are people this morning who, who will commune for the first time with Christ in the keeping of the Lord's Supper. And there are those who, for the last time, will partake in that blessed event. You know, we're reminded through the passing of our sister Lynn of our mortality here, that the time we have here is precious and it is limited, but it is tremendously blessed because our lives here are in Jesus Christ and we are of the redeemed. So we're thankful very much for, our, for this time of assembly and I'm thankful for the time to st- study God's word with you. Um, We've been studying the last uh, few opportunities I've had to speak about more about Jesus. Um, And because we want to learn, we want to know more about Jesus. Uh, We're studying in the book of John, and we're doing that on Wednesday nights. And so this is really intended to be a complement to that study. So the things that we're covering there, I'll try not to uh, spend a lot of time on uh, as we do these uh, complementary studies. Um, But... We want to talk about the fact that we want to remember the fact that Jesus is the theme of the Bible from beginning to end. And we've talked about that, that um, Jesus, we've talked about Jesus in prophecy. We've talked about the, um, the, the uh, feasts and the sacrifices of the Old Testament, that those were a shadow of things to come. And those and the body that cast the shadow was Christ. So all of those things were pointing to the time that Jesus would arrive. And all of that time, God was preparing the world for Christ. And we find that the New Te- in the New Testament, Paul says that in the fullness of time, Christ was born of a woman. He came into this world born of a woman. And so we've talked about that event. We talked, we've talked about uh, in these studies, we want to look at Christ's life in a, in a chronological order uh, to the best that we can. When we look at the Gospels, and we talked extensively about that, that was the Gospels last time, and kind of the differences in those, all of them, you know, give us the picture of Christ's life. They give it from different perspectives, and they give us different details about the events. Um, when we look at the birth of Christ, we talked about that his birth was announced by angels to Zechariah first, uh, and taught in telling him that he and his wife would have a son who would be John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner of the Messiah. So the time of the Messiah had arrived. And then we see the announcement to Mary that she is blessed among women and that she will be the mother. She will give birth to the Son of God, the the Messiah. And then we see the announcement at Christ's birth to the shepherds there in Bethlehem. We see an announcement by revelation to Simeon and Anna. We know that God had told Simeon that he would not die until his eyes had seen the promised one, the Messiah. And we see his rejoicing in that of Anna uh, in the time that Jesus is brought to the temple by his parents. And so there is rejoicing there. We see the announcement of God through prophecy and through a star to the Gentiles, to the Magi. And we talked extensively about that last month. We see Christ, how the, the announcement of Christ birth was received. So again, it was received with joy by the shepherds um, and by those who they announced it to, as that says that they went and they told others 
the good news. And then it was received with praise and thanksgiving, again, by Simeon and Anna. It was received with awe and worship by the Magi. It was received with envy and hatred, of course, by Herod. And by the most of the world, it was received by indif- with indifference. And so we see those same characteristics in the way that Christ is received today, but it's interesting to, to look and study at those things. The early life of Christ, very little is told us about his early life, but growing up, the, he grew up as the Messiah. He grew up in Nazareth, and we, we've talked about that Nazareth was a very obscure little town. It was, it was uh, kind of what we would call in Galilee what those in Judea would look would kind of look to as as the hicks right in the sticks and that's kind of where Jesus grew up he had very humble beginnings and he he grew up in obscurity Uh, he had godly parents we've talked about that they were common people but they were godly people they were chosen by God and they had hearts to serve Jesus had he was the oldest of at least he had at least six other siblings So Jesus grew up in a large family. Um, He had at least four younger brothers and at least two sisters. The scripture doesn't tell us how many sisters. It names four of his brothers, but it also says he had sisters. It doesn't tell us how many. But Jesus was the oldest of these. You know, you think about that we're not, Joseph is not mentioned to us after the early life of Jesus. We assume that at some point Joseph passed away. And Jesus perhaps was the, not only the oldest child, but he would have been one who was helping raise the others and, and a very much of a help to his mother. We know that they, his family was a devout family. And the scripture tells us that every year they went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And so he, he grew up learning the word of God and lear, learning the law and he grew up going to synagogue and being taught in synagogue. And as you think about that, as Jesus the Messiah, as he's listening to the prophecies of the Old Testament, at what point does he realize that they're referring to him? As he listens to Isaiah chapter 53, at what point does he realize that the suffering servant is him? That these are the things that he is destined for, the things he is called to by the Father. We know the one event that we are told is when he's 12 years old and his family goes to Jerusalem for the Passover, that when they and, and their, all of their family and friends, as they travel back to Nazareth, they've gone some distance before they realize he's not with them. And so they go back and find him in the temple and he's talking to the doctors of the law. And he's, he's questioning and answering them in these things and they're marveling at his wisdom and he answers his parents when they ask, why did you do this to us? He said, did you know, not know I must be about my father's business? So Jesus certainly recognized his calling, his mission, who he was at a fairly young age. Now we're going to talk about the beginning of the, per- the personal ministry of Christ. And so, when, again, when we look at the time of Christ's ministry, we assume that period is about three and a half years based on the mentions of the events of the Passover in the book of John. And so the events that we are going to talk about this morning is, are the early events in Christ's ministry that happened before that first Passover is mentioned uh, there in the book of John. Uh, of course, the first thing that started the ministry of Jesus was the ministry of John the Baptist as he came to fulfill his mission in preparing the way of the Lord. 
being in the, coming in the spirit of Isaiah and calling the people to repentance and telling them that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The time of the Messiah is here in the hearts, and there was excitement because of this, and all people came out to be baptized of him in the river Jordan. And then when he saw Jesus approaching, he announced, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. In that, John's mission was fulfilled in preparing the people and proclaiming the arrival of the Messiah. And we know that a short time later that he would be arrested and eventually beheaded. We read about Jesus' baptism in Matthew, Mark, and Luke as he comes to John to be baptized. And John says, I need to be baptized of you, and you're asking to be baptized of me. And Jesus said, let it be so that all righteousness is fulfilled. The obedience to God is the utmost thing. And Jesus is baptized in the river of Jordan. And after he's baptized, the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, descends and rests upon him like a, in the image of a dove, or like a dove. And uh, the, the voice of God from heaven says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The announcement of God that this is the Messiah. This is his Son. <clears throat> now, Jesus himself began his personal ministry at about 30 years of age. This is Luke chapter 3 and verse 23. So immediately after Christ's baptism. So all the time up to this point has been preparation by God for his Son to begin his mission. Over the next three and a half years, he's going to proclaim the kingdom and the gospel. He's going to show and reveal to the world who he is through his teachings and through the miracles that he performs. He's going to prepare his apostles for their mission that will follow. He's going to look forward to and anticipate the cross and his burial, his resurrection and his ascension back to the Father. But before all of those things begin, there's something else that Jesus must endure. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So we want to note, first of all, that <clears throat> Christ's temptations were not by accident. This, it was planned. It was purposeful. It was something that Jesus, Jesus must endure and go through. As we, as the reading this morning, and thank you, Brother Riley, for, for the reading, um, Luke 4, verses 1 and 2 says that Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil, and in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they ended, he was hungered. We want to notice when the, these events take place. Again, it's immediately after Jesus is baptized and as he prepares to begin his mission. This tells us something about us, too, as Christians. You know, it's, it's when we become a Christian, when we are baptized into Christ, that is not the end of temptation. That is merely a, the beginning of more intense attacks by the enemy. We want to notice the situation that Jesus was in when he endured these temptations. Number one, he was isolated. He was out, the scripture says, in the wilderness. He was out away from civilization. He was away from other people. He was isolated. You know, that's what Satan seeks to do to us too as Christians. He wants to isolate us from the fold of God. He wants to make us vulnerable to his wiles, to his, to his uh, temptations. We see that Jesus was in a state of weakened, um, a weakened condition physically, that he was hungry. He had not eaten for 40 days. It's hard for me to, it's hard for me to imagine, I, I, you know, going that long without eating food. Um, but certainly, you would be in a very weakened state. You would be 
you would have a certain amount of fatigue, you would be very vulnerable to, uh, to Satan's attacks. And that's all of those things were by design. That Jesus would go through the most extreme of situations and the most extreme of temptations that he would have to endure and overcome. You know, the Apostle Peter tells us to be sober, to be vigilant, for our adversary, the, dev the devil, goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Understand that we constantly have an enemy who is seeking to undermine us. He doesn't walk around in a red costume with horns and a pitchfork. And he attacks us in different ways. But he seeks our vulnerabilities. And he seeks the times that we are weak. And, he, and through other people and circumstances, he seeks to tempt us to sin. And certainly that was the case with Jesus. All of the years of human history, Satan had been sharpening his sword, so to speak. He had been perfecting his, his ways of tempting people. And he knew the most, the most pointed ways to attack Jesus to keep him from doing what he had come to do, to keep him from fulfilling the mission that he had come to accomplish. <clears throat> and the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this, this stone to be turned and become bread. So the first thing we want to notice here, and we're not going to go through all the temptations and we're not going to focus all of our time on this this morning, but we are going to talk a little bit about temptation um, and the devil and the wiles of the devil and how he attacks us and some things just about temptation in general. But he, first of all, he, he tempts Jesus by saying, if you are the son of God, questioning, maybe perhaps trying to put a question in the mind of Jesus as to who he was, then command these stones to be turned bread. He appeals to what? His hunger. The thing that his body craved and was hungry for. To turn these stones to bread. Satisfy that hunger. Show that you are the Son of God. Prove it. <clears throat> you know, it's the same way that we're attacked today. You know, he, Satan is going to appeal to the things that we need, to the things that we crave, to try to get us to... Uh, find those things in sinful ways to f satisfy the desires, the needs of the flesh in a, in a sinful way. You know, the scripture tells us, the book in the, that John tells us that all that is in the world, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, these are not of the Father, but of the world. And the world passeth away in the lust thereof. But he who does the will of the Father endures forever. So those ways, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life are the ways that Jesus will be tempted here. It's the same it's the same ways, the thing, same things that we are tempted with. It is the same things that Adam and Eve were tempted with that they fell to back there in the garden. <clears throat> but Jesus answered and said to him, saying, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And we're going to talk more about this answer in just a minute. But before we do that, I want to talk again just a bit, little bit about temptation in general and about Jesus' temptations specifically. Again, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Like the cross, this was something that Jesus must necessarily endure. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 says, therefore in all things he had to be made like us, like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For he in himself has suffered being tempted he is, able to, he is able to aid those who are tempted as he also suffered. So one of the things I want to note about this, first of all, Jesus was made like us. He was human. He was fully human. 
the temptations that he had to face were fully temptations. In his human mind, they were things that would appeal to him, just as they would appeal to us. And they were things that he had to overcome in his time of physical weakness and trial. Second, Jesus was tempted in the same ways that we are, that we just talked about. But Hebrews also tells us more, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. In all the ways that we are tempted, Jesus was tempted. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Not only did Jesus go through that to endure the things that we do and to be without sin and, not, and to endure those things and to overcome those things, but he's also there for us. He understands the things that we go through. He understands the temptations that we face. And he's there to secure us in those times and to help us through. Jesus endured and he overcame temptation. Again, he did not yield. He did not sin. The next thing we want to notice notice is temptation is not sin. But temptation is the invitation to sin. Jesus was tempted. You know, we face temptation. Sometimes we may feel guilty because we simply face a temptation. Temptations are normal. Temptations are to be expected. That is something that we are, te- we are constantly going to go through because the scripture tells us that the flesh and the spirit are contrary to one to the other. And there's a constant struggle between the spirit and, and the flesh so that we cannot do the things that we would. But temptation is normal. Temptation, again, is not sin, but it is the invitation to sin. So sin happens when? When we accept the invitation. James said it, said it like this, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. When we accept the invitation to sin, then that's when sin happens. The next thing we will note is there is a difference between being tested and being tempted. We go through tests all the time, and God, God tests our faith. God tested faith of the faith of people in the, in the scripture that we find. Circumstance, we go through circumstances like Maybe it's a crisis of health. We've talked about a lot of people today who are going through various crises of health. That can be, that can be a trial. That is a trial. Um, there are other circumstances that we go through financially and otherwise that are a trial of our faith. But going through a test is not itself temptation. Where, where does temptation happen? Temptation is not from the external. Temptation is from the internal. <clears throat> Again, temptation is the struggle in the spirit, it is the temptation to satisfy what we want in a sinful way. We're going through a trial and we seek a way out of that circumstance. Temptation is to take the easy road or the way of sin to escape that situation. So there's a difference, a big difference. Um, James 1 and 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. So with sin, God does not tempt us. Who tempts us? Satan tempts us. God may try us. He may allow us to be tried. He may allow us to be tempted, but God never tempts us. You know, Jesus said when we pray, we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God does not lead us into temptation, but temptation happens. is something that happens on the inside. And it is Satan who has the lures out there trying to draw us into a sinful behavior. Three more things that the scripture teaches us. Number one, the ways in which we are tempted are not unique. 
Number two, God limits the extent to which we can be tempted. And number three, God provides the means for us to overcome temptation. And all of these things are told to us, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 13. No temptation has overtaken you except it is such as as common to man. So the things that you go through, the temptations, you're not alone. You have a lot of people in the world and a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ that face those same temptations. Understand, number one, that they're not unique. Number two, God limits the extent to which we can be tempted. He said he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. God's not going to allow allow you to be tempted more than you are able to endure and to overcome. And he provides the means for you to do that. He said he provides us a way of escape in every situation so that you can bear it. The final thing you want to say about this is now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until he had opportune time. This was not the end of the temptations of Jesus. And what does it tell us about us? Number one, the Bible tells us to resist the devil and he will flee from us. When we seek that way of escape, when we endure, when we overcome those temptations, we'll find relief and Satan will flee from us. But the other part of that is he's not leaving forever. (laughs) Peter's exhortation to us to be sober and to vigilant to be vigilant on is ongoing because satan's not going to give up just as he never gave up on trying to dissuade jesus from fulfilling his mission but i want to talk finish uh, today for the last few minutes and talk about the way that jesus answered each temptation with it is written what a blessing that we have in the written word of god you know, in the time that, Jesus, that God was preparing the world for Christ, one of the things that he was doing that we've not talked about really exclusively is he was providing his written word. So that when Jesus faced those temptations, he could answer with, it is written. God planned his word. God planned his written word for us. You know, we go back and we look back in the book of Exodus when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and God gave him the Ten Commandments. Not only did he give him the Ten Commandments, he gave him the law. He outlined much of the law and about the things that they were to do as they traveled there in the wilderness with, with respect to building the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle. Jesus gave him much instructions. But the first thing we know, the first uh, thing we're told about, about the written word of God was written by whom? By God with his own finger on the tablets of stone as he wrote the Ten Commandments on those tables of stone. You know, the Bible tells us that Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was brought up in the, in the household of Pharaoh. He had access to the greatest education that was possible in his time, and God used that preparation and those skills in Moses for Moses to write the first five books of the Bible that we refer to the law. In Exodus 17 and 14, God told Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Promise made by God, he told him to write it down for Joshua to record it. Exodus 34 and 27, when God's expounding him to Moses the law, he says, write these words. For according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and the rest of Israel. God said, write my words. Record these things for yourself and for posterity and for you and I today to know these things. Then the king stood. Okay, let me get it back a little bit. Let me back up a minute. Let me give some background to this one. So for the next 
1,500 years, God is going to prepare, again, the world for Christ, and he's going to give his word to be written. First to Moses, Moses wrote the first five books that we are there referred to as the Pentateuch, I believe is how you pronounce it, something like that. How do you pronounce it again? <laughs> anyway, uh, the first five books that we refer to is the Law of Moses. And then after that, we see people like Samuel, and we see people like David and Solomon, Isaiah, Daniel, Jeremiah, Ezra, and the rest of the prophets that are, that are instructed by the, and guided through the Holy Spirit to record the writings of the Old Testament. Now, God not only gave them that writing, but he preserved that writing through those years. And all the things that, they, that the children of Israel went through, his word was preserved. And we remember the words of Jesus. The words I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Remember Jesus said that his words would never pass away. Heaven and earth shall pass away, my words shall now, never pass away. The word of God is not going to pass away, but is going to be preserved because it is of utmost importance to us. Now, again, I get ahead of myself. <laughs> Many years later, after Moses, after the divided kingdom, in the kingdom of Judah, there was a very dark time. There were a lot of dark times in the history of Israel. This was a very dark time when they had forgotten God, when they had forgotten his word. In fact, they had lost his word, the scripture tells us. They had, they had um, given up the worship of the true God, and they were worshiping idols. They had fallen into idolatry and paganism. And a king rose up who was get, brought to the throne was named Josiah. And Josiah was probably the, the following David, perhaps the best king ever in Israel. And Josiah was only eight years old when he became king. But as Josiah grew and learned, he started, he started reforming Israel. And he, he gave commandments and instructions to tear down the idols and to burn the altars to the pagan gods. He instructed for money to be raised to rebuild the temple, to restore the temple because it had fallen into ruin and people had forgotten about the true worship of God. <clears throat> but it's, it's interesting, as they were going through and, and restoring the temple, they found something. You know what it was? It was the Bible. <laughs> it was God's Word. It had been lost in the temple. They had forgotten about it. And it says here in 2 Kings 23 and 3, Then the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statute with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. The things that were written, God preserved those things. And when a man of good heart came along, he restored those things. And he made a covenant with God to keep those things that were written in the book, not only him, but all the people. And God told Josiah, you know what? <laughs> These people, are, you know, their, their destiny's already established. What was that? That they were going to be taken into Babylonian captivity. Josiah himself died at an early age because God prevented him or allowed him not to see what, was, what happened to Judah and, and their carrying away into captivity. But again, remember the importance of the things that are written and God preserving his written word. And when the people came back, from Babylonian captivity. We read in Nehemiah that as they had rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, that, that they were called by Ezra and by Nehemiah, who was the governor, to the city. And what did they do? They taught from noon till, from the early, from sunrise till noon, they read the law. And it says, Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and the scribe, and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is the holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard 
the words of the law. So these were people who were starved, so to speak, for the word of God. And then this tells us something. You know, the, the Bible says that the word of God is, sharp, is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's alive and powerful, even piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. God, there's nothing sharper than the word of God. God's word pierces and God's words, God's words comfort. And the people, when they heard it, they wept because of the piercing and because of the comfort from knowing that this is the word of God and that this is the will of God. Romans chapter 15 and verse 4 says, For whatever things were written beforehand were written for our learning. God's word was preserved not only for those people and their posterity, but for you and I today. And for Christians of all ages, written for our learning. They were written for our learning, for us to understand the will of God and the character of God and, the, and God's plan that he's shown us through the scripture. Second Peter 2, 20 and 21 says, no prophecy of scripture is any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Again, a confirmation that the scripture that we have is indeed the word of God. It was not written by men, but it was they were as, as they were inspired by God to write those words. <clears throat> Second Peter 3 and 15 says, And consider the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our brother Paul, according to the wisdom that was given to him, has written unto you. The, the writings of Paul were what? They were scripture, as also in his other epistles, speaking of them, in them of things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people listen, twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scripture. What is Paul's writings? They are scripture. What is, what is the warning from Peter? Understand those things. Don't take them out of context. Don't twist them to say what we want them to say, but let the word of God speak for itself. 1 Corinthians verse, chapter 4 and verse 6 tells us, that God's word gives us boundaries. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes. What is he talking about? He's talking about where some of them were saying, I have Paul and I have Apollos and I have Cephas and I have Christ and the divisions that were among them. He said, I'm I use me and Paul as examples here of what you're doing and the divisions that you're making. He says, for what? That you may learn not to think what? Beyond what is written. Beyond what is written beyond what is written in the Word of God, beyond the instruction that God and the, the, the things that God has given us in His Word, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf or one against the other. So again, the boundaries that are given to us through the Word of God. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write, so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. He said, I write for what reason? So you know how to how to conduct yourself in the house of God. You know how we are to do things the, the righteous way, which is doing things, doing the right things in the right way, the right things in God's way. How you to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Understand this, God's word belongs to whom? <laughs> it belongs to God. The church of God belongs to whom? It belongs to God. He purchased it with his own blood. It was here before we arrived. It will be here after we depart. It is not given to us to change God's design or his word to fit what we want or what, what our desires are. The law of the Lord is perfect, said the psalmist. Converting the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statue of the Lord, statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. 
The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Listen to the last part of that verse. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. The goodness and the severity of God. The scripture tells us towards, in the, the, speaking of those in the, under the old law, to those who disobeyed, there was, there was severity, but those, to those who obeyed, there's goodness. God's word warns us, and it comforts us, and it gives us his promises. To what extent did God go through to prepare the world for Christ by having his word? And what, to what extent has gone, God gone through for you and I to have the word preserved today? To have a sure and steadfast way of knowing what God's will is for you and I. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and those who keep the things that are written for it the time is near. This is revelation. There's a principle here for us to recognize Blessed is he who reads and hears and does those things that are written in this book. You know, that's what James told us that, you know, if we're a forgetful here, if we read the word, we don't do it. You know, we're like a person who sees himself in the glass and immediately, or sees himself in the mirror and immediately forgets what he looks like. Read, not only read, but hear, have ears to hear, absorb, understand God's word and carry those things out and do those things. God has not only written his word on paper, but, the, but 2 Corinthians 3 tells us he has written it on our hearts. Paul's talking about, do I need a letter of recommendation concerning who I am or concerning the gospel? He said, you are my letter. You are my epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of your heart. The words of Christ written on our heart, obeyed in our lives, is an example, is an epistle to those around us of the gospel of Christ. And finally, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12, And I saw the dead and small and great standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what? By the things that were written in the book. It is written. God's word is written. It is for our learning. It is for our understanding. It is for our salvation. But there is another book that that verse referred to. There is another book that's written. We read about this book all the way back in Exodus. When Moses, after the children of Israel had made an idol to worship, and and he was intervening, asking God to forgive them. Moses said, yet now if you will not forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. What book's he talking about? What book's he talking about? He's talking about what we know in the New Testament is the book of life. You know, when Jesus sent out the 70 and what was called the limited commission to go out and preach the kingdom of heaven, to heal the sick, They came back and they were rejoicing at the accomplishments they had had and the success they had had. And they said, you know, even the demons were made subject to us through your word. And Jesus said, I saw Satan falling like lightning from the sky. And I'm going to give you authority to trample on the things of the enemy. But Jesus said, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice. Why? Because your names are written in heaven in God's book. In God's book of life. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 3, Paul said, Paul wrote, I urge you, also, true companion, help those women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. 
Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5 says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Our names are in the book of life, but they can be blotted out is what, what Jesus is saying. But I will confess his name before my Father and before the angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And again, Revelation 20 and 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to the works by the things that were written in the books. And who was saved? Those whose names were written in the book of life. And so we close today with, is your name written there? God's word is sure. God's word is written. The question for you and I is, will our name be found written in his book when we stand before him? If you've never obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you would choose this time to obey him, to confess his name, to be buried with him in baptism, to rise, to walk in newness of life, to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. We're here to help you with that today. If we can assist you with prayer or in any other way, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing the song that's been selected.